Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Cigar Stream. We are carrying on reading Britain's Blunder by Peter H. Nickel. Difficult for, uh, to find book, although some people have found PDF versions of it. Uh, I have uh, an actual original copy, which I forked out plenty of money for, but I have seen there are PDFs floating around for those in the know. And uh, I am uh, currently on Chapter 4, which is called The Pledge to Poland, which I'll start in a moment. Just before we get going, reminder, click like and subscribe, join the channel, pick up, uh, yeah, subscribe to my Substack, and uh, maybe you want to buy a course at the academic agency. What advert shall I play today? Why not this one? So let's waste no time. Uh, as ever, I have pre-recorded this, even though it's going out live. Uh, so if there are any super chats, I will read them at another time. So let's get going. It's Peter H. Nickel, Britain's Blunder, Chapter 4, The Pledge to Poland. The reader can now judge the preposterous position that these facts and conditions about Germany in the summer of 1939 proved an overweening intention on Hitler's part of conquering the whole world. It is hard to credit what mass suggestion can achieve when it actually managed to make millions of British believe such false, silly and slanderous propaganda. The motive for the suggestion is easier to understand. The politicians who dragged us all into the war required some ground that seemed adequate to explain such a terrible deed and at the same time to fire the spirit of the people to wage the war when started. That is why, when, once the war did begin, nearly every periodical and newspaper and magazine was stuffed with every conceivable and inconceivable charge against Nazi Germany, till one might think that Hitler was Satan, enthroned and embattled against all the meek and righteous armies of the Lord, and that this Satan comprised in his person and policy every damnable quality and characteristic which the most lurid imagination could paint and count. And I'll just uh, pause there to say we have seen this in our own lifetimes when the media slipped into the same mode against Vladimir Putin and the media slipped into the same mode against Saddam Hussein and it slipped into the same mode against Bashir al-Assad and various other people uh, even within living memory. So it's all the same tricks. 
going right back to 1939. And, of course, these writers and slanderers were well paid for their gospel of calumny and hate. The British government blessed them and soon began to do its own broadcasting of poison propaganda, which quickly developed into a steady stream of carefully selected material calculated to damn the enemy in the eyes of the whole world. But before the war broke out, there was no such violent and united crusade against Hitler, nor was there any popular fear that war was approaching. The public saw no interest of a real eruption in the continental situation. Even those who deplored Hitler's action in entering Czechoslovakia could not pretend to feel that this action was a menace to Britain's or any other big power's freedom. There was far less tension in the country that summer than there was in 1938. People seemed even to have forgotten that not Hitler, but the British Premier, Mr Chamberlain, had committed them and the whole world to catastrophe by a few of the most foolish, arrogant and provocative words that a public servant ever surely uttered. And in these words we find the immediate cause of the Second World War. Mr Chamberlain, immediately after Hitler's entry into Prague in February, made a public statement in which he declared that if Germany attacked Poland, Britain would come to Poland's aid with all resources she had at her command. She would rise to defend the integrity and independence of Poland against any act of aggression. There, then, was the pledge to Poland, and there was the challenge to Germany. Its true nature was so uh, has so often been veiled by the glamour of idealism, courage and succour, that it is necessary to bring this challenge of Chamberlain right into the light of reason and to assess it properly. Briefly, it was the most tragic speech any Prime Minister ever uttered. Consider its nature. First, it was thrown out in evident personal pique because Hitler had incorporated a Netherland after telling him, Chamberlain, that he, Hitler, had no more territorial claims in Europe. We have shown the complete indifference that any quote-unquote claim and the said protectorate. Sorry, we have shown the complete difference between any quote-unquote claim and the said protectorate. And yet here was the British nation's leader responsible for her guidance in the very greatest of affairs, confusing totally different actions and, as feebly, venting his feelings in an outburst, in a threat which might indeed, was certain to, embroil the whole world in war. One must believe that he spoke after consulting the whole cabinet although his speech in its hasty tone and speedy delivery after Prague seems to belie this. Whether he spoke for the whole cabinet or not, one thing is certain. He gave his pledge to Poland and uttered this challenge to Germany without one thought of consulting the great mass of the people who might have to reap 
and did have to reap the bitter harvest of his thoughtless and stupid words. Can anyone pardon the presumption of a leader who commits to possible war, war of the most terrible kind, with the most unforeseen results, a whole nation without even consulting them beforehand? However, history shows that despite our framed quote-unquote democratic system, all our wars, including this and the First World War, have been declared and the awful result imposed on our country and people without consulting our people and without any mandate from them. Only in parish pump affairs does this quote-unquote democracy appear to work at all. It will be said that Chamberlain knew the mood of the people and needed no vote of encouragement or of sanction. Perhaps the majority of people did approve of his challenge with its good old-fashioned air of reckless bravado and hearty championship. But it is safe to say they did not have time to consider seriously what the challenge might lead to, the horror and pain and grief unparalleled, nor had they been permitted the truth and facts on which to decide. Others no doubt approved because they thought that this would frighten Hitler and stop him from all future quote-unquote aggression, as the name was for anything he did. The fact remains that millions were committed to the catastrophe of modern war without one hour given them to digest the vast possible consequences without a single vote being taken, without a single chance being given to object, and by a man and government elected on a platform of quote-unquote peace. Well, Mr. Nickel, Peter H. Nickel, if I could go back in time, sir, I would give you a copy of my best-selling book, The Populist Delusion. And all of your dreams of democracy would be shattered in an instant. But I'm sure Mr. Nickel knows this already. Anyway, let's continue. The second feature of this pledge was the vague and uncertain possibility of its fulfilment. Did Chamberlain or his government believe that they could, by attacking Germany, maintain the integrity and sovereignty of Poland in the face of Germany's opposition? One does not know whether they weighed the possibility or not. There seems no evidence that they did. If they did not, they were giving a paltry and worthless promise of help while committing us to a terrible, useless second holocaust. If they did, they must have known that they could not fulfil their pledge. They could, of course, come to her help by attacking Germany. But what sort of help was it to be which would not achieve the only ostensible purpose it was given for, the integrity of Poland? The Poles undoubtedly received the pledge as an assurance that if Germany attacked them, Great Britain would and could ensure their safety and their national sovereignty unimpaired. They too seem not to have appreciated the practical difficulties in the way of such a guarantee, for they now evinced every appearance of security, of security and of defiance towards Germany. Thirdly, if Chamberlain suspected that Britain, 
in spite of her help, could not prevent the invasion and curtailed sovereignty of Poland over her present territory, was it not a crime to involve his nation? And as he knew France, in a venture which he knew could not succeed? Idealists might reply that whether successful or not, the only right thing is to stake all in a righteous cause. But even assuming that it was a righteous cause, which in fact it was not, such idealism applies to an individual's own conduct, not to his dealings with other people's lives and fortunes. It may be sublime to take a great risk to save another's life. It is certainly immoral to compel millions of other persons to share in that risk. And yet that is exactly what the British government did through its premier's words on that fatal evening. It staked the lives and fortunes of a whole nation, of a whole world in fact, on what might be a vain venture, a worthless promise, or if we make the assumption on a righteous but probably futile crusade. Let us examine now the fourth feature of the pledge, its ethical nature. We have assumed in the last paragraph that Mr. Chamberlain, however rash and thoughtless his actions, was at least doing the right thing, even a noble thing, in offering to defend Poland with all Britain's might if she were attacked by Germany. If it was a rash, it was a if it was a rash, it was a righteous cause. This has been assumed by most people ever since, because people never really think, still less concern themselves with righteousness. The truth is that ethically, this pledge was quite an immoral one. For consider, there was not one word in it laying down a single condition as to Poland's merits or demerits in any dispute with Germany. Not one word of the justice of Germany's claims and activities in respect of Poland. Poland got from Chamberlain a blank check, so far as merit went, in any dispute. Was that a righteous pledge? Is it right to back any friend, let alone any causes, acquaintance, whether he was in the right or wrong? whether he is an honest man or a blackguard? Poland might be entirely in the wrong, but the British nation has now pledged to assist her in that wrong. When we reflect that the only thing that can excuse war is the plea and defence of justice or the writing of a manifest injustice, we can measure the iniquity of committing a great nation and possibly the whole world, to war without one word, thought, or condition of this matter of justice. That was the blank check to Poland. It, in effect, said, I don't care whether you are in the right or wrong. If Germany attacks you, I will declare war on Germany to defend you. And this is called by foolish people a grand and noble gesture. It was an unprincipled and vain promise, activated merely by personal hatred of Hitler. There is still another feature of this famous guarantee of help. It was essentially 
if latently, a claim to control another great nation's foreign policy. Chamberlain, to all intents, was direct was dictating to Hitler what he could and what he could not do in relation to surrounding states. Now, and, and again, the parallels with Putin are incredible when you think about it in, this, in these terms. Um, now let the reader ask himself what Britain could have thought if she had been dictated to by Germany or Russia or any other power as to what she was to do or refrain from doing in her relations to Ireland or Portugal or to Canada or to India. Think of the hatred which Berlin, uh, think of the hatred which Britain incurred all over Europe at the time of the Boer War, when Europe saw a small and industrious and harmless country attacked and overrun and eventually annexed by a great powerful nation like Britain. Even then, was there one thought in any statesman's head that any outside power would dream of showing such presumption as to interfere and to dictate to Britain what she must do? One has only to consider the matter calmly to see that Chamberlain's challenge to Germany was a piece of sheer arrogance. It said to Hitler, I don't care what you have against Poland. I don't care what you have to say about justice or injustice. You must keep your hands off her or I will make war with you. If this is not dictating another nation's foreign policy, then what is? It will probably be contented that any nation has a right and indeed a duty to assist and defend another who is a friend if the friend is attacked. But Poland was not a friend of Britain's at, at this time. By any treaty, alliance, or understanding of any kind, she was simply an artificially created state bordering on Germany, and Chamberlain's pledge was not, and could not possibly be, a pledge to a friend or ally, but was given precisely to hinder Hitler from any expansion on the continent. And again, many parallels with Ukraine, of course, because Ukraine has no formal alliance with uh, America or Britain and so on and so forth. So, you know, all of the rhetoric of the press calling Putin Hitler over the past two years um, has actually all happened before because this it was the exact same playbook they used back in 1939. And all the time, it must be remembered that this Poland of 1939 had existed only 20 years and that there had been no Poland at all for 150 years before that, and that this artificial Poland of 1939, a dictatorship under Plezut, uh, Pilzut, sorry, Plezut, I, I struggle with Polish names, a dictatorship under Pils, Pilzutski, there we go, Pilzutski, a dictatorship under Pilzutski had been created at Versailles for the exact purpose of hemming Germany in, together with the abominable separation of German, East Prussia and Danzig. It was an intimidation that the German Reich had reached its extreme limits and would be permitted ever to exceed them or to regain proper access to its own land of East Prussia and Danzig, 
The arrogance of such an intimation and its selfishness of motive can be better judged when we reflect that Britain, besides all her other assets and advantages, as compared with Germany, was safeguarded by her island position from all those sources of friction and worry which the continental nations had to deal with uh, through their very propinquity. propinquity. That's now that is an interesting word. Um, the continental nations had to deal with through their very propinquity. Well, friends, I mean, I uh, I sell the course foundations of writing, but I must propinquity. That is a word I have not come across. Propinquity means a state of being close to someone or something, proximity. Or in a technical sense, close kinship. Okay. All right. So let's read the sentence again with that in mind. The arrogance of such an intimation and its selfishness of motive can be better judged when we reflect that Britain, besides all her other assets and advantages as compared with Germany, was safeguarded by her island position from all those sources of friction and worry which the continental nations had to deal with through their very propinquity and interactions. So their very closeness, their close proximity and their interactions. She had no question of minorities to deal with, no burning points of justice and injustice in their treatment, no territorial displacements and frontier fictions to embitter one side or another. Almost all, of course, the harvest of the Versailles treaty 20 years before and yet she in her lordly independence and freedom from all that presumed to lay down the law to germany the worst sufferer of all through versailles and to bid her henceforth to surrender all warlike means of obtaining what she wanted no matter how just the claim or how urgent the need she could of course negotiate for what she wanted but no force must be applied if negotiations failed, the suppliant must just suffer. This brings us to a point sometimes stressed in order to mitigate the arrogance we have shown to be in Chamberlain's pledge. It has often been said that Britain did not raise a barrier against Germany's just claim because she always professed her readiness to further any peaceful negotiations between Germany and Poland. So she did. But no one knew better than Chamberlain that a country has not the slightest chance of getting certain concessions, however just, from another who is adverse to the claims, if that country cannot back her claims by the ultimate sanction of force. It cannot be pretended that in 1939, Hitler was bound by any League of Nations against all war. He had expressly declared years before that the League was a farce and that he would have to depend on his own right arm. Nor could Britain or France pretend that the League had any further sanction of war, for they had both failed notoriously, along with its other members, to carry out its principles and clauses when the tests came. Therefore, Chamberlain, could not speak in the name of the League, nor in the name of any principle which he himself and his government accepted when he said, in effect to Hitler, 
you can you can negotiate if you like with Poland about any of the claims you have in her direction, but on no account can you use force. That is an offence, an act of aggression, which I will not stand. As I already pointed out, quote unquote aggression had now come to mean any action of war taken by a rival. When taken by oneself, it was to use the sword in a righteous cause. But fair historians and honest thinkers will agree that so long as an independent sovereign states exist and manage their own affairs, the use of the sword for that which each claims as quote-unquote just is equally legitimate or illegitimate for all. It was a piece of childish blindness or repulsive hypocrisy to contend or assume that, of course, Britain only used force for the sake of justice, where Hitler would only use it to snatch at more gains from weaker nations. As to the particular case of Poland, we will examine that shortly. Okay, I've been waiting for why he thinks that Hitler's claim on Poland was just, because um, so far that's been missing. Now we must sum up the pledge of assistance. I mean, he, he did mention that uh, Poland hadn't been a country for very long and hadn't existed for 150 years and all of that, but that's in and of itself, that is not showing the justice of Hitler's claim on Poland, uh, in, to my mind at least. So that's, I'm trying to share with you my own thoughts as, I, as I'm reading this uh, for you as well. Okay, we'll continue. Now we must sum up the pledge of assistance given to the spring in the spring of 1939 to that state as the most rash, foolish, unethical and arrogant pledge one nation has ever given to another. And it was this fatal pledge which directly and swiftly led to the Second World War. If the blame can be laid on any single person, it must be laid on Chamberlain. And if on any one government, it must be laid on the British government. Pretty unequivocal and pretty damning from Nicol there. Chamberlain is at fault for starting World War II, according to Nicol, and the British government more widely. Okay. They must have known perfectly that no self-respecting nation would quietly consent to have their whole policy and action controlled and dictated by the British government. The pledge soon began to bear its evil brood of warlike passions and actions, menaced by Britain and France and defied by Poland, Hitler announced that the pact of non-aggression with Poland was at an end and also the naval agreement with Britain whereby Germany had promised not to exceed 35% of Britain's naval force. He maintained that the recent guarantees for Poland were inconsistent with these two previous agreements. Since the spring of 1939, the question of Danzig and of German access to her North Prussian province through the Polish corridor had become a burning one. Hitler's critics and enemies have always tried to delude even impartial people in Britain about the double question of Danzig and the corridor. They have derided all of Hitler's having any other aim in raising these twin matters except that of still further invasion and annexation of the independent nations. It is said he fomented the whole trouble in Danzig, deliberately stirring up its citizens to nurse imaginary grievance and patriotic fires, and that as to the corridor, he simply had no need or right at all for a road access uh, it 
across it to North Prussia. We can measure the justice of these criticisms by asking ourselves how content asking ourselves how content any large city whose population was 94% British would be to remain under the rule of our nether realm and how England would feel about having a corridor of alien rule separating her from Scotland. And yet again, I, I cannot, I'm sorry to keep on bringing this up, but the parallels with Donbass and the, the four oblasts that Putin um, you know, uh, has invaded Ukraine over are remarkable. Although I will say in this case, there there were even more Germans um, in these regions than um, <clears throat> uh, Russians in, in, in the oblasts. Okay, Danzig's population was 94% German. And although she was termed quote-unquote free, she was politically part of Poland by grace of Versailles once again, that damn treaty. And if, quote-unquote, free, why not free to come under the government she wished? The corridor was bad enough as a separation of Lynn, of Germany, from its body. But Hitler asked merely a German right of way through it. But critics have said, how came it that these grievances only came to light? when Hitler sounded his trumpet. How was it that for 20 years we heard of no such grievances? The answer is surely not far to find. Germany had other greater problems and more urgent needs to attend to during these years, and very important. People who have a grievance will quickly vent it when they see a leader who will be likely to help them. Hitler did not excite the grievance. He only offered a chance of removing it. And soon the people of Danzig, seeing the chance, rose as a one man to grasp it. As to Hitler's fermenting the whole trouble, surely any experience or observation will teach us that no man, not even a potent leader, can ferment trouble effectively unless it is first there. You cannot fan a fire if there is not a spark to fan. An illustration of this is seen in the political cry for home rule for Scotland. For years now, a certain party, some of them with high educational gifts, has tried to stir up Scotsmen to rise up and demand home rule from Imperial Parliament. They have done their best to ferment the cause, to demonstrate the right and need and benefit of it, and to rouse these people against the gross injustice of their present subservience to England. But have they succeeded? They have utterly failed. Why? Because the fact is that the great mass of Scotsmen feel no grievance whatsoever about being governed by Imperial Parliament nor about their union with England. They possess a good deal of separate national legislation, and they are as content politically as any people could ever hope to be. And so, there being, remember, he was writing in 1950-odd year, 1952, I think it was. Um, so, you know, he would not have known about the rise of the SNP much later, although it should be said that this SNP 
lost the Scottish referendum and <coughs> under Youssef Hamza, whatever his name is, Hamza Youssef, um, are surely uh, about to face an electoral wipeout in the next election. But uh, who knows? Maybe, uh, you know, maybe that prediction by me will aid, but we'll see. <clears throat> there being no grievance to fan, the men who began to fan just failed to raise a fire at all. In Germany, the ordinary laws of human nature prevail. Hitler did not and could not invent a grievance. He merely found one and shared it, and it set, and it set himself to remove it. The Danzig and Sudeten questions were both similar in this respect. Very interesting points by Nichols. Genuine grievances don't take much to fan. Artificial grievances, like the Scottish independence, for example, need to be kind of manufactured. Very interesting and true points by Nichol. The truth is that because outsiders in Britain and elsewhere got tired of seeing Hitler insist upon one German claim after another, they got angry. And then they just decided that all these quote-unquote rights must be schemes of aggression. Now, it is rather tiresome, no doubt, when, let us say, a worker first asks for better pay, and next he wants a better house for his family, and then he goes on to want a healthier place of work and so on. But only a malicious or stupid person would argue that because the worker got his first claim granted as a just one, and even his second, then to go on asking anything else proved that the whole series of requests was just a piece of selfish oppressity. Good point. Nichols employs logic to good effect in this book so far. I don't agree with all of his arguments, but he is making very sound, uh, you know, he's making it make sense for all of us and for me. I appreciate that. Foundations of logic, friends. Actually, there is no valid reason why the worker should go on working in a very unhealthy ship, mill or yard without any complaint, just because he had managed to get his wages and his house improved. A just claim does not become false and selfish, um, uh, uh, does not become a false or selfish one simply because it is the third or the fourth a man has made. So he's basically saying that a man can make four, five, six, ten just claims, which is true. Right? It's true. And yet this is distinctly one unfair treatment Hitler got from the outsiders, who themselves happily had no wrongs and no claim. They had been rather sourly acquiescent in his first and even second claim for Germany, but when it came to Danzig and the corridor, their impatience ran away with all sense of justice. They just decided that these further claims were nothing less than plans of aggression and aggrandizement, and by some curious reasoning, that Hitler's earlier claims were also plain aggression and aggrandizement. That in the summer of 1939, Hitler ignored Great Britain's orders and felt himself able to proceed as he deemed right, were certainly closely related facts. No ruler would take action irrespective of a confessed opponent, if he did not feel equal to the matter in hand. But once again, because Hitler now felt his power, that does not mean that he was going to use power without justification. We have shown 
that he had justice on his side in his Polish claims, that he defied England's unwarranted challenge because he believed that he could successfully defy it uh, weighs not one grain in the balance of justice against him. It has not. It has been accepted on rather flimsy grounds that Ribbentrop convinced his leader that Britain was too effete, or at least too indifferent to fight if it came to a point, even after the famous challenge. And then the popular mind seems to infer at once that Hitler would never have committed such an outrage as attack on Poland, but for Ribbentrop's wrong advice. Notice how quickly and invisibly the assumption of outrage creeps in with the other assumption, the assumption that Hitler would not have attacked. It is this sort of illogical and unfair popular mentality which causes so much trouble in the world. Yes, I quite agree, uh, Peter Nickel, and I have seen it in my own lifetime, countless times, many times over. As I sit, perhaps, on the brink of another world war, I see many parallels. Hitler might certainly have refrained from attack if he had believed Britain would go to war over it. But that does not mean that he would have been refraining from a crime. He would merely have been holding back from a just claim till he felt abler to go ahead. Nor believing that Britain could not go to war, did he commit a crime in attacking Poland just because he did feel confidence and did have the power. It may seem dreadfully pedantic to detail all this reasoning, but unluckily it is absolutely necessary in the face of the wrong-headedness uh, of the assumptions and malicious insinuations and groundless inferences which the mass of people in England began to make. They at least were quite convinced that the whole business was simply this, that Hitler was a ruthless aggressor, and could only be stopped by a force greater than his own. And they hoped the more decent citizens anyhow, the Chamberlain's pledge of help to Poland, would, he, would keep Hitler in order. Or once again, draw a parallel with the Boer War. In this, we had little or no justice on our side, and it was a war of almost direct aggression to secure gold and diamonds. Suppose Germany had, quote-unquote, guaranteed the Boers. Should we have climbed down? Simplicity is a rare thing and much desired, but it is no help to history or to truth to simplify a complex business just to suit our own tastes or prejudices. But we can ignore the vulgar and uninformed traducers of Hitler and listen to one of our own far better informed and more balanced public men speak. None other than our own British ambassador to Berlin, Sir Neville Henderson, who wrote in his book, Failure of a Mission, when the war was on and he had returned to his seclusion in England. He had every reason to placate both the government, which had employed him and had made war on Germany, and the ordinary public, who were now influenced by their political and class leaders with a perfectly senseless hatred for everything and everyone German. That public, that public would naturally think that this man, their own representative, who had been in that Nazi den of demons for two years, was now come right from its horrors 
would be the very man to confirm their own feelings, views, prejudices, or whatever you choose to call them about the Nazis. And indeed, woe betide him if he did not, was the additional attitude of mind. And of course, the government would be highly displeased if their ambassador did not provide ample grounds for justifying their act of war. One cannot fail to see, then, that Henderson must, in writing his book, have done his best to meet the expectations and mood of his country. And yet, because even to conciliate a powerful state employer and an excited angry mob could not make a man of honour descend to sheer falsehood, Henderson's book proved a great disappointment to both the government and the public. They were angry with him for not showing a more definite aversion to the Nazis, for not recording all sorts of atrocities in concentration camps, and for not showing, in particular, that Hitler deliberately plotted and carried out his attack on Poland, as a burglar would on some selected house of treasure. Henderson had rather caustically to remind his critics that he had not been sent to Berlin to hold an inquisition on German iniquities, but to try and make a peace between the British and German nations, rather than a ludicrous inconsistency of aim on our government's part. For a while, with one hand she was holding out the dove, in the other she brandished a sword. Her one way of making peace, apparently, was to condemn every action Hitler took, to satisfy the claims of justice for Germany, or to avail himself of chances of expansion. Moreover, while Henderson was presumably taking talking smooth things in Germany. Most of our journals and papers, always so ready to pander to popular tastes, be it high or low, were busy insulting and deriding Germany's leader and all his retinue. Henderson had two years of special intimacy with the Nazi regime and its personalities. He had far better knowledge than any of those who so glibly poured out information at home, and the result of uh, was this rather tepid book, neither approving nor condemning the Nazi in any wholehearted and convinced way, but doing what any honest and sensible man would do, approving of what he found good and condemning of what he found bad. One thing he did lament, Hitler's fierce impatience and Ribbentrop's rather insolent abruptness during the last fatal days. This, of course, was all common knowledge before Henderson's book confirmed it. He had ex officio supplied all news to his government uh, hour by hour at the time. And here is the distinctive feature of the book. In spite of the popular furore in England and his natural desire to be on safe terms with it in wartime, Henderson wrote as his considered judgment that Hitler had a definite case in his favour in the claims from Poland and that when friction became acute on the borders, the Poles were, if anything, the more guilty of provocation. The first judgment is that, again, the parallels with Ukraine and the situation a couple of years ago is remarkable. The first judgment is that we have here maintained and what any fair observer of events and conditions would hold. The second corrects, and in fact believes, the popular cry in Britain that Germany deliberately adopted provocative measures along the border so as to provide an excuse for real action. Henderson was obliged in wartime to use mildness in any apparent defence of the journey uh, of the Nazis. Uh, 
But reading between the lines, the reader cannot fail to find a distinct claim for Hitler that he had much justice on his uh, on his side in the Polish dispute, and that if friction along the border uh, precipitated the rupture, the Poles were the guilty party. It will do Britishers a world of good now to reflect that in these fatal days, our own representative in Germany, the man with the best facilities for knowing, excavated Hitler from both the charge of aggression and from precipitating the actual conflict. Another charge against Hitler is that he broke a non-aggression pact with a country which he now invaded and that he started the invasion without giving Poland the slightest chance to negotiate by simply delivering an ultimatum in the form of a demand for an immediate plenipotentiary to arrange the terms of concession. All this is untrue. So long before this had Hitler been trying peaceful negotiations that it was on the 28th of April 1939 he announced to the whole world that his efforts had failed. He had offered Poland excellent guarantees of certain advantage and a 25-year non-aggression pact if she would agree to Danzig's return to the Reich and grant a German road through the corridor. He announced that not only had Poland refused these suggestions, but had entered into a new mutual assistance pact with Britain and renewed a former one with France. Hitler declared that these doings were inconsistent with Poland's 10 years non-aggression with Germany, agreement with Germany drawn up in 1934. He therefore declared it cancelled. Right, so just to underline what he's saying here, basically he offered Poland a deal Give us Danzig and access through the corridor. In exchange, we'll give you a 25-year non-aggression pact. And Poland said, "No, bugger that. We're going to side. We're going to uh, instead sidle up to the British and the French, and um, basically going to make the situation where we're not going to give you anything you want. If you want it, you're going to have to come and get it. And <laughs> but if you do." Britain's going to declare war on you, which is essentially exactly what Zelensky did in uh, to Putin um, back in February 2002. And if you remember, it was Boris Johnson, you know, following in the footsteps of his heroes here, doing exactly the same thing uh, in April of 2002, uh, 2022, uh, when he prevented, um, you know, uh, Zelensky and Putin from making that deal uh, then. You know, much much bloodshed could have been avoided. And, uh, you know, history does not repeat its rhymes, but here we are. And uh, forgive me for pushing this analogy, the the similarities to, you know, a bit during this. But to me, they are absolutely striking. And what I'm trying to do uh, by making that analogy is by trying to, like, put you into the mindset of what it was like to live through you know, without all of the nonsense of um, the mythology that has kind of grown up around the various parties here. Because I think it's far too easy to think of the Germans as simply evil. 
So I'm I'm trying to make a modern day analogy to you know take a lot of that emotion out of it. Um, okay, uh, maybe it's helpful, maybe it's unhelpful. I don't know. Let me know in the notes. Let me know in the show notes. Okay, so uh, he continues. How far Hitler was justified in abrogating the pact in this way will be a matter of dispute. One thing is certain, he did not break the pact by attacking Poland, which is the vulgar belief in Britain. He gave several months' notice of his claim and appeal to Poland before he resorted to force, and had it not been for Britain's gratuitous interference in an affair in which he had no legitimate business whatsoever, it is uh, certain that any anything was reasonable um sorry it is certain as anything reasonable can be that poland would have yielded the claims and obtained new peaceful and lasting guarantees of her independence and sovereignty failing a peaceful concession hitler no doubt did resolve to insist on his claims by force a procedure which we have pointed out was the only one ever hitherto accepted and adopted by those powers which could afford to, and by Britain, perhaps most of all, in grasping a huge empire. In any case, Britain's pledge made war inevitable. We have already analysed that pledge and shown what stuff it was made of, but we must now add a word about the main motive which induced Britain to give it and to keep it. And as to keeping it, she simply had no other course without disgracing herself before the whole world, and Britain usually keeps her word, although not always. That accounts very largely for the silence imposed on those Britons who were strongly opposed to her declaration of war in September 1939. They knew that she simply had to keep that pledge, no matter how stupid and disastrous it had been. They found themselves in a lamentable situation. They had to abide by their country's word of honour, and yet in their hearts they abhorred what the bond meant now. As to the main motive which induced the pledge, it is hard to nail it down, and one must be as charitable as possible in ascribing motives, but even charity can hardly deny that Britain's chief inward motive was self-protection against a powerful possible rival in New Germany, not just self-protection of a crude military kind, but the protection and maintenance of all their powers, prestige, possessions, advantages and gains as a nation in the face of any possible modification or infringement of them by the pressure of Germany. It has not... It, it, sorry... It has, of course, been admitted the admitted policy of Britain for decades, if not for centuries, to prevent the accumulation of predominant power in the hands of any one continental nation, because that might menace her own glory and welfare. Since this has been publicly admitted by our politicians on many occasions, and since the man in the street has again and again admitted, in this case, that we went to war, not so much for Poland's sake, but for our own, we are justified in saying that this was, in truth, the main motive of Britain in giving that pledge and in keeping it. Let the reader, therefore, now take note that, once again, neither justice nor generosity, solidarity nor civilization generally, had one place in the main motive. It was entirely selfish. It was, therefore, the antithesis of all that we reckon as Christian. 
If Hitler's main motive was purely selfish, the advancement of Germany, then he had at least as good and as high ground as the Allies with this in his favour, that he was writing what he believed and which in fact were Germany's wrongs, while the Allies were in the fortunate position of having no wrongs to right. But what about liberty? When a nation, a modern nation, goes to war, she always endeavours to conceal her lower motives under the guise of higher ones and frequently succeeds because most people are so easily deceived by fine talk. It was inevitable that our government should select the old slogan for her latest crusade. Thousands of ordinary Britons did not believe sincerely that it was a crusade for freedom from a horrible tyranny which already had enslaved several nations and threatened to enslave the whole world. There had been a grand rallying cry, and it was wonderfully effective, for nearly all men love liberty and inevitably hate discipline. The Prime Minister, in his first war speech, ended by declaring that at least this war would be a fight against evil things, against bad faith, oppression, tyranny and what not. We have examined the career of Hitlerism and seen that these charges tend to dissolve into mere prejudice when closely examined. At the worst, there had been some undue harshness in concentration camps on the part of a few over-patriotic young Nazis. Hitler had united Austria into Germany to the acclamation of the former. He had brought back the Sudeten Germans and their territory into the Reich, and finally responded to the Czechs and the Slovaks when they called for his intervention and protection. And it pleased Britain's politicians to call this tyranny and oppression and bad faith forgetful of the Irish and of the Indians and of all the others over whom they had ruled with suave words, not with suave words, but a rod of iron, races who were alien and who owed no natural allegiance whatsoever to the British overlord. We will, however, leave the question of tyranny and oppression till later. The chief slogan was liberty. The liberty of the whole world was menaced because Hitler asked for Danzig and a road to his northeastern province. Can anyone look back now and reflect on this cry and on the credulity of the British public without amazement and amusement? Can anyone pardon the men who deliberately made a tool of the unthinking mess of their fellow countrymen in order to attack and destroy a great sister nation, deceiving them with a cry of slavery and the call to freedom, hiding a plane of jealousy and destruction beneath a fine pretense of high ideals? Whose liberty in Britain has been menaced by Hitler's regime? Whose liberty in France? Whose liberty in Danzig? Whose liberty in any continental country? Yes, in Czechoslovakia? Only the liberty of saboteurs and assassins. That is the complete answer. You tell him, Pete. Tell him, Peter Nickel. But Britain's ignorant and prejudiced islanders preferred to listen to the lies and the calumnities of a handful of disgruntled and often felonious grumblers and rebels rather than to the vast concourse of not only satisfied but enthusiastic citizens of the whole new Reich, who knew that under the Nazi government, even if it did not give quote-unquote democratic freedom and would not tolerate 
self-destructive criticism, they enjoyed a dignified, prosperous and happy life. We in Britain may not find it possible to share in such contentment without having our own doubtful democratic freedom. But are we to impugn and attack every nation which finds contentment in any other system but our own? Yes, I would like to ask that question today, in 2023. Why cannot other countries have other systems of government? Leave them to it. Quite right, Peter Nicholl. And this, what I call the boomer truth regime, was alive and well before World War II even started, is what this book is telling us. Because the same rationale, the same mindset, the same thinking was right there in 1939. Arrogant and stupid. That is the case he's put forward in this chapter. And I found it pretty convincing, I have to say. If you don't find it convincing, I would love to hear the counter-arguments. It, uh, it was often said in those days that we had no quarrel with Germany over her internal political system. The system was the sole concern of each state. But when pressed as to what external wrong Germany had committed against ourselves or any other, the accuser would at once turn to her totalitarian system and her Jewish policy and denounce them for being big enough causes for the war. And here it is fitting to bring in the witness of the British trade unions. The unions hated Hitler for one supreme cause, if not for one solitary cause, that he had suppressed the German trade unions when he came to power. Everyone knows how jealous the trade unions are of their status, powers and privileges. They have had to fight considerably to gain them, and no one uh, grudges them their lawful place and power. When they saw these correspondence of fraternal unions suppressed in Germany, their leaders inflamed all the workers with the same rage until... Um, uh, uh, rage at the thugs who would suppress them. Um, sorry, the leaders inflamed all workers with the same rage until rage at the thugs who had suppressed them knew no bounds. Thugs in inverted commas. Hitler stood in the workers' eyes for one thing and one thing only the oppressor of the workers in Germany and the destroyer of the free trade unions. So he's saying that they managed to muster up support against Hitler from the unions because he had suppressed the unions in Germany. Was it genuine narrow-mindedness or deliberate malice which made them imply and declare that this abolition of the unions in Germany did and could only mean tyranny and oppression of the working classes? Some of them at least must have known and ought to have been informed that the rank and file of their followers, while Hitler dissolved the unions, he put in their place a social machinery which was in most respects far better than the one discarded, far better for the workers. Why did the British leaders not explain that the arbitration courts set up by Hitler were as fair as any such courts could be in Britain or anywhere else? That the workers had a strong place on them and were further protected by impartial neutral members. That actually in the year following the institution, the big majority of all cases raised and decided in the courts went in the favour of the workers that the workers received benefits better proportioned than in any other country, and the holidays with pay definitely arranged for by the delight of the workers. The British trained unionist might, of course, still prefer his own system 
to all these advantages um, of another one. But was it fair to keep the ordinary members in ignorance of these advantages and so to, to distort them when they became known here and there as we make them cut out to more camouflage to hide actual slavery? Was it not honest to call Hitler's system a piece of tyranny and oppression? One can only judge that the British trade unionists were so obsessed with their own methods and systems that they set themselves to attack it and to slander any other system whatsoever, however beneficial it was to the workers. One wonders how often the British worker asked himself, how comes it that the vast majority of the German workers seem to be quite reconciled to the new Nazi system, if not indeed the enthusiastic Nazis themselves? And did it ever occur to him that the answer was simple and obvious? The German worker found that the new system was better for him than the old. In any case, about the first act of the Red Dictators in Russia was to abolish the trade unions and to substitute a mere empty pretense completely under their thumb. Hitler was not the first, nor alone, in this matter. So he's saying, like, why didn't the trade unions hate Stalin, for example, who also abolished the trade unions? Very good point indeed, Peter Nichol. Okay, so um, that is the end of this chapter, but there is a little chapter five, a summary of causes, which I might as well do because it's only a couple of pages long. So we'll get a little bonus chapter today. This is the summary of everything we've heard from Nickel to date. He's summing up his argument now, and this closes the first part of the book. Okay, summary of causes. We can now sum up the causes of the Second World War. They were first, the Treaty of Versailles, with its punitive clauses designed to humiliate Germany and limit her power permanently. Second, the League of Nations, by its refusal to implement its own promises in its resolve to maintain the nationalist interests of each member and to preserve the status quo in Europe. Third, the suspicion and resentment of Britain and France at seeing Germany under Hitler's leadership regaining her own strength and taking by force what they should have been granted in justice. Fourth, the hostility of the working classes in Britain against Hitler for his dissolution of the trade unions in Germany. And fifth cause, and the direct and culminating one, Chamberlain's pledge to assist Poland by force if she were attacked by Germany with no accompanying conditions. And I think uh, Nicola has laid out a very strong case that this was arrogant and stupid and one of the worst bits of foreign policy decisions ever made by anyone ever. And he lays out that Neville Chamberlain's door. One would, of course, mention various minor contributing causes, but these are unimportant compared with the major ones. And we are here dealing with only the great salient features of this world imbroglio. It will be seen that this interpretation disposes of the generally accepted creed that Hitler started the war and that his purpose was to dominate all Europe and then the whole world and that his whole course was sheer aggression and his progress in power a menace to the human race. We should have shown by detailed examination that to an imperial student such a creed is compounded of prejudice, ignorance and no doubt much deliberate malice. 
Hitler was impatient, over-patriotic, provocative, and instringent, uh, instringent in many ways. But his claims were just, as justice has always been reckoned among other nations. And to charge him with the secret aim of world domination was quite absurd, absurd and baseless, in fact. And uh, I will tell you, they also claim the same thing of Putin today, that he's bent on world domination, that, you know, how many times have you read it in the papers that, you know, he's not going to stop, he's not going to stop with just Ukraine and Kiev, you know, he'll go all the way through Poland, he's going to, you know, like a bulldozer through Europe. In the early days of the war in 2022, they, they, all of this crap appeared again. Um, and essentially what's happened with World War Two is that the is that the kind of propaganda of the time has just kind of been then remembered in history, right? The, it, it's like um, it's like all of the rubbish that you're gonna that people forget about about Putin uh, over the past few years. They'll just you know be remembered and carried over. Every single lie told about these guys, uh, you know, perpetuates for infinity. Um, we have shown. Oh, sorry. Uh, let's have a look. Uh, again and again, one still hears that anyhow, quote unquote, he started the war. This is a fine example of the sloppy sort of assertion which satisfies the credulous masses. Hitler did not start the war. It says, oh, I, I better do this with a different emphasis because he's used italics. He says, Hitler did not start the war. He started a war, a quite local war. And even in it, he was consider considerably excused by Poland herself, according to the judgment of the British ambassador to Germany. Britain and France started the world war by gratuitously declaring war against Germany, following an interference in Germany's affairs that Britain would never permit in her own. She had done them no wrong whatever. All she had done was to refuse to obey the dictation of these powers as her own rights and her own way of securing them. And in this refusal, she did exactly what Britain and France and any other self-respecting nation would have done. For no first-class power would consent for one hour to have her foreign policy dictated to her by another nation. It would not be much more instructive if, if the British people were to set up some serious inquest on the action of their own government at the time. I would love to see that. I would love to see a truth and reconciliation on the British government, not only of this time, but of all subsequent times since 1939. Because as far as I can see, they're nothing but traitors. But let, let's carry on. Does it not occur to them as an outrageous thing that Britain should have declared war on a great sister nation when that nation had done Britain not one conceivable injury of any kind. If Britain were genuinely suspicious of Hitler's ultimate aim of European domination and afraid for her own ultimate security, is she morally entitled on the ground of such mere suspicion and fear to hurl the whole war into the whole world into war? Is one country justified in attacking another simply through a vague fear of some vague future? 
Is it not incumbent on any decent person or power to wait till he has been wronged or attacked before launching an attack upon the suspected party? And yet that is the essence of what Britain did, and many Britons have openly and naively said so. And when you lay it out like this, it is fucking madness what happened. Give me the counter-argument. What is the counter-argument? Because as far as I can see, Nickel is 100% correct about the whole Poland situation and the actual start of World War II. Why why did it start? What was the possible cause of plunging millions of men, millions of men to their deaths over this? It's a crime. And it was Britain's crime, I'm sad to say. It was Britain's crime. Germany, they admit, had done Britain no injury, but Britain was right to go for her before she could. And that is the degraded code of governmental conduct, which was heartily confirmed and applauded by a people who call themselves Christians. Even from a selfish, nationalistic aspect, since it was perfectly evident that if Germany attacked Poland, we could not possibly prevent Poland's defeat, it would have been far better not to have given an impossible guarantee, but to await events gain time for our own rearmament, and so be ready and strong if, later on, Hitler actually did do anything wrong to us. As to the charge of having plotted war against neighbouring nations as being a crime against humanity, on what principle did Britain bring this charge against Germany alone and not against Russia for her attack on Finland and a forceful absorption of the three Baltic states? And on what principle did she make war on Germany alone on this plea? And she, when she and other members of the League declined to make war against Japan for attacking China and Italy for attacking Abyssinia, neither of which attacks had one-tenth of Hitler's excuse re-Poland. The plain fact is that Britain acted on no moral principle at all, however loudly she professed to do so. He's quite right, you know. He's quite right. There is no justification for this at all. On the contrary, she condoned in members of the League all pledged to abrogate war. And she condemned in the one power which was not a member of the League and not pledged to renounce the use of military force. The United States was not a member of the League either. Can we imagine Britain charging Washington with a crime against humanity if she had gone to war against Mexico or Cuba or any other state as America has actually done in the Philippines? No, it must be confessed by any discerner of truth that Britain resolved to fight Germany for the old reason, to prevent Germany ever becoming a great colonial power and trade rival and a menace to her own opulence and power in the world and look at how that turned out okay look so so let's pretend you're the guy in the comments coming up with a counter argument look at how it turned out look at how it turned out it actually didn't protect british power and prestige in the world it destroyed british power and prestige in the world this move didn't it hence britain's blunder fucking stupid Destroy the empire for what? For what? Anyway, let's continue. 
um, it was the good old heathen reason, but because there is a strain of real idealism and of Christian conscience in our nation, the government was profuse and persistent in maintaining that it was an almost holy crusade to defend the liberties of mankind against the tyranny of a merciless totalitarianism, and the government therefore diverted the attention of the public, and especially of youth, to the views and faults of that system in Germany and Italy, and tried desperately to whip up a burning hatred of it, and a fine enthusiasm to engage in a war to destroy it. They signally failed to manage this for months after the war started. The public were, of course, vastly interested in the second outbreak of war between Britain and Germany, and they showed an ineractable pugnacity of all grown-up schoolboys, but they were certainly not spiritually inflamed at all, and scores of thousands were both indignant and disgusted by our leaders for once again choosing war as a means to end war. Peace by negotiation was publicly proclaimed and pleaded for in nearly all centres of the nation during the first winter of 1939, that is, the incredible phony war period. All this was forcibly brought to an end by the government when, as a result of challenging Germany, the government had brought the nation to the brink of utter defeat and disaster. Naturally and inevitably, one might fight hard, and with one heart and one mind, when faced with the menace of outright defeat. But that necessity has no bearing on the moral principle which governs the original act of going to war. The citizens who may have objected most strongly to the latter act may feel compelled to fight strenuously in the war when, against his will, it has been started and has brought his country to the verge of ruin. But this natural feeling in British hearts, so applauded and exploited here to cover up the initial disastrous blunder of declaring war at all, could not possibly be allowed to German hearts. We have executed hundreds of Germans whose only quote-unquote crime was precisely this, of fighting strenuously for their country, right or wrong, once it was attacked. That was precisely what happened after Dunkirk. The government was in a panic. The military authorities insisted on the most stringent measures to ensure safety, and the whole nation, including millions who had disapproved of entering on the war at all and who called for peace by negotiation, pledged itself now to do anything to save itself from total defeat. Then many thousands who still voiced their anti-war views went to concentration camps or an 18B prison. The government and all those who had approved of the war policy seized this chance of portraying Germany as a monster whose evident aim was to destroy Britain and enslave the world. Had she not overrun Holland, Belgium and France? And was she now not bent on adding Britain to the list? It seems incredible, but it is true that no Briton had the same sincerity, the sense or sincerity to admit that if you hit a man who has not attacked you and went on hitting him in spite of his appeals to desist, you can expect nothing else than retaliation. Hitler has twice besought the Allies to come to some reasonable terms. He had met the most conciliatory appeals and offered the most reasonable terms on which to call a conference 
of all the powers in Europe to prevent the world catastrophe which they were leading it to. But twice, first after the Polish campaign and again after the fall of France, Britain turned his appeal and his offer flatly down and declared that she would fight him to the finish. What else could Hitler do but reluctantly defend his country against such a persistent policy of destruction? And again, I have never seen any kind of rational or legitimate justification for why Britain turned down the peace offers twice. To make out that he was the guilty party who sought gratuitously to destroy Britain was the hypothesis of criminal hypocrisy. So it was with France. She, albeit unwillingly and at our behest, declared war on Germany. She put up a poor show after grandiose talk about invasion of Germany and marching to Berlin. The bitter bit, it was she who invaded and was decisively beaten. Whom had she to blame but herself? But no, it was the Germans who were unspeakable barbarians for turning the tables, invading and defeating her. I mean, when you put it like that, I mean, come on. The bulk of people, of the people of Britain, terrified at the result of their own assault on Germany, saw only the danger to themselves and the success of their enemy, and accordingly accepted the cry of war of the warmongers. They saw Germany as the big bad wolf and themselves as the innocent sheep. Not one apparently had the sanity and fairness to see or confess that Germany had no alternative but to fight with all her resources against an enemy who openly proclaimed that it intended to reject every appeal and proposition for reasonable terms and an honourable peace and to fight instead to a finish, that is, the finish of Germany. Here it may be cogently asked whether the, the acquiescence later on and then the peril of defeat had receded in the unprecedented barbarism of our war conduct and in the devilish policy of unconditional surrender, the farce of the Nuremberg trials, also un-British and against our traditions, was the horrible reflection of our panic here when invasion and defeat were so imminent. It's it's very interesting that he calls uh, the all of this un-British, because I quite agree it is un-British. As to the general argument, that the Nazi system was inherently evil and must be destroyed in the interests of human freedom. This could not possibly support an act of war against Germany. Otherwise, we should long ago have been at war against Bolshevism. And indeed, various political leaders in Britain had hitherto agreed and proclaimed that the internal political system of any other state was its own affair and could not be reckoned a casus belli. Tell that, Mr. Nickel to Slobodan Milosevic, to Saddam Hussein, to Colonel Gaddafi, to Vladimir Putin. They nevertheless transgressed their own creed in this case. Why? Because their real motive was just to tie Germany down and prevent her ever being a possible menace to the vast power and prestige of Britain. No one in a democratic country could possibly approve of much in the Nazi system. Totalitarianism does mean the tyranny of the state over the individual, and there were many actual methods used by the Nazis 
which were abhorrent to us in Britain, especially as so few here realised what the Nazis had to face and fight on the continent. But if we were to go to war with every nation whose internal politics and methods of government we did not like, then we would have been at war with Italy long before any, uh, long before, and with many other states, including a certain red Russia. Neither by our own professed creed of international relations, nor by the merits of the general question, could we possibly find ground or excuse for entering on this Second World War. It was the appalling danger which the British government, by its incalcitrant determination to destroy Nazi Germany, had brought the nation into, which really roused the country to a furore of act of martial activity and blotted out all other considerations. There can be no doubt, of course, that these gallant youths who in their thousands rose to defend their country believed they were also defending the liberties of mankind for they had been fed on this propaganda entirely in recent months and could not possibly escape the diet, the effects of such a diet. Happy, perhaps, were those of them who did not survive to see the appalling dissolution which was to follow this false crusade when at last it won its way and attained its end. And that's where he finishes the chapter. Peter H. Nichol, my friend, I'm talking to you now from 2023. If only you could see how bad things are now. You have no idea. He was writing in 1952, of course. He thought things were bad then. My God. Well, at least we're not speaking German. All right, that'll do for today, friends. We'll be back. We'll carry on with Britain's blunder. I'm into this now. I'm into it. We're going we're gonna to reach the end. We're going to do every single chapter of this book, even if it takes 20 streams. Okay? Um, let me know what you think. You may disagree with the thesis here. I have actually uh, disagreed with Nickel more in previous chapters. On this one, when it comes to Poland and when it comes to the, the actions of Britain's government in the lead up to World War II, I absolutely agree with him that there is no justification for it. It's just, it's just utter stupidity and the consequences for this country have been disastrous, in my opinion. Um, and I, I really have not seen many convincing arguments against that, which aren't, you know, uh, Tory boy copes, essentially. So if you have a really good argument for against Nickel, I'd love to uh, I'd love to see it. Uh, you know, these sorts of things usually inspire, you know, essays in the comments and so on. But uh, I won't, you know, if you want to leave such essays, uh, please do so. Um, I will not. I will not abide any personal attacks whatsoever. If I see any personal attacks in the live chat or in the comments, you are instantly banned for life. I. I. I take no nonsense whatsoever, at all. Okay. Even if you're a channel member, if I see an insult against me personally or against the members of this this channel or, the, or against anything I'm doing here, you'll be banned for life. Okay. That's my. That's my pledge. Okay, and you can bank that one. All right. Thank you very much, friends. Um, I'll be back for Unpopular Opinions on Tuesday. Please like and subscribe. Join the channel. Pick up a course at the Academic Agency. I recommend starting with Foundations of Writing and the Trivium, but you can make your own commercial choices. But most importantly of all, ladies and gentlemen, get out. What goes on in this town is none of your business. As long as I'm living here, it is. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here!
Well, that's easily fixed. 